The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Moreau Catholic High School, the Congregation of Holy Cross, and any other agencies, organizations, employees, or company associated with Moreau Catholic High School. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants slash authors. Injustices prevail in this world every single day. But we cannot let these injustices threaten our world. We cannot let evil destroy our good. We cannot sit here and pretend like everything surrounding us is okay. We all have a voice. And as people, we need to let our voices be heard. It's time to speak out. So welcome everyone to speak out. Today we have Sister Helen Prejean with us. Sister Helen Prejean is a Catholic nun from New Orleans who has worked tirelessly against the death penalty, inspiring conversation nationally about capital punishment and even influencing the Catholic Church's stance on executions. Her crusade began in, began in 1984 when she first witnessed a state execution after ministering to a death row inmate in Louisiana. The 1995 Hollywood feature film, Dead Man Walking, based on Prejean's 1993 memoir of the same name, raised awareness and sparked a national debate about the death penalty. She's a member of the Congre Congregation of St. Joseph a ministry of more than 700 Catholic women who take vows dedicating themselves to improving poor and underserved communities. She has toured the world as an esteemed lecturer and has become a globally recognized opponent of pr prisoner executions. We are so excited to speak to Sister Helen today and are so excited for all of you to hear from such an incredible leader and change maker. So without further ado, let's begin. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, delighted to talk to both of you, Anaya and Brooke, uh, and everybody listening. So what I have is an incredible thing that, that happens. It comes out of trying to follow the way of Jesus, trying to follow the gospel of Jesus. And for a long time, I thought what that meant was that to be charitable to people around me, be a good teacher, not one of those mean nuns slapping kids with rulers and all that, slapping them going, God is love, slap, slap, slap. No, but a kind nun who loved them and all that. But I, and I just wrote a memoir about this. I just wrote an account of um, wake, waking up to it. It's called River of Fire, uh, a waking to justice and to activism. And um, so what happened is, you know, God's grace wakes us up and we wake up a lot by hanging out the way we hanging out right now with each other and having conversations about things that really matter like human rights, like whether or not a government can ever have the power to make decisions that they can decide there are some crimes that are so bad that they can make the decision to take the life of a citizen. 
the Catholic Church, after 1,300 years of dialogue, has reached a position that you cannot allow government ever to have that kind of power because they're always going to use it wrong. I mean, we just watched President ex-President Trump with his Attorney General William Barr decide that they were going to kill 13 people on federal death row. And because they had the discretionary power to do it, even though there hadn't been executions for 17 years in the federal jurisdiction of the death penalty, they had the power to do it and they did it. And it just exemplified how when you turn power over to government, it's gonna be in the whims of individuals, their political drive or their bias or whatever it is. Well, we're gonna kill you, you, you and you. And they killed 13 people because they decided to. It just shows we're seeing more and more the problems when you turn over to government. It's called the, the last vestige of the right of kings when you have power over life like that. You know, you remember hearing the stories of people could come before the king as the last resort, please your highness, uh, mercy, show me mercy, don't let me be hung or whatever the terrible punishment was. And the king would go, okay, you can live. Okay, no, you're gonna die. Well, we've invested that in government and it's the power over life and death. And it's beyond us to be able to handle it. Well, so I got involved because, first of all, I moved out of the suburban neighborhood in which I was living out of white privilege. So in New Orleans, we had 10 major housing projects where African-American people were struggling on every level with the police shooting them. And just like we have just witnessed in the uh, in the trial you know, for the, for the policeman who killed George Floyd. Just every kind of injustice of people struggling against poverty. Main thing poverty does is it limits your choices. When you're poor, you wait in line for stuff. You can't choose when you're a mama to get your kids out of a dangerous neighborhood because you can't afford rent in another neighborhood. You have to stay there. Limits what you can get for health care. Limits... Uh, what happens to you with education? You're forced to go to a public school. You can't afford to go to a private school. Um, and when I moved into St. Thomas, and I tell this story in River of Fire, for the first time I was living among African-American people as my peers, as my neighbors. Because all the time growing up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, it was during the Jim Crow days, and I only knew black people as our servants. And I never questioned the suffering of what went on because you couldn't sit in the front of the bus, even at Sacred Heart Church. You couldn't sit with your family with the white people. And when you receive your Holy Communion, which is such a symbol that we are all one, uh, black kids couldn't receive Holy Communion with the white kids. And that's like putting the blessing of religion on segregation and that some are inferior to other people. When you got religion blessing stuff, you know, they kind of seals it because it kind of says, well, this is really God's will. This is the way things really work. And God is blessing this. And when you claim that ultimate authority that God's blessing this, you know, it's like you're putting a seal on it that, that just makes it much harder then to question it 
is this really a God thing? Is this, and, and just watch how religion is used and quoted by political leaders when they want to seal in. We even had the former Attorney General Jeff Sessions um, when he wanted to justify separating children from their parents at the border, the Southern border. He quoted from a, an epistle of St. Paul saying that you should obey civil authority. If you disobey civil authority, if you break the law, you're going against the will of God. In other words, he was saying because the parents brought, had their children with them when they came seeking asylum at the border, it was on them that their children were separated from them because it was God's will. What the state said was God's will. It was horrendous that he said that and did that. And that's done all the time at the death penalty claiming, well, this is a God thing. And then finding those biblical quotes and boy, you can find them um, to just say, yeah, this is what God wants us to do. Uh, putting the holy on it, putting like, this is a God holy thing. So I, African-American people became my teachers and they taught me about the other America. And one of the things that led me right into it was the criminal justice system. And I got an invitation to write a letter to somebody on death row. And I knew nothing about all this. I knew nothing about prisons, nothing about how the death penalty worked. And I got an invitation to write a man on death row. I wrote a letter. I thought I was only gonna be writing letters. I never dreamed that after I wrote that first letter in 1982, that they were putting executions back. There had been a moratorium on the death penalty. Excuse me, my battery's running low here. We, we have to take a little, I gotta make sure we're connected. I've been having a little trouble with this. I don't know why this is doing this. Okay, sorry about that. So you see, when I wrote this letter in 1982, we hadn't had an execution in Louisiana in over 20 years. It had been like an unofficial moratorium. We thought we were putting the death penalty down, but it had been put back by the Supreme Court. I had noticed in 76 when the Supreme Court made a decision to kill people, that the government could kill people again for their crimes. So I write the letter and two and a half years later, the man I was writing to then began to visit is killed in front of my eyes. I have it in a River of Fire. I write about the experience. That's the fire in the book. And it says, uh, they killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act because he had killed. No religious leaders protested the killing that night, but I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. And now here's an account of how I happened to be in the execution chamber that night and the spiritual currents that brought me there. The man's name was Patrick Sonier. He had done an unspeakable crime. And what has fueled the death penalty is, Look at this crime. This crime is so terrible. How can you say he deserves to keep on living when he has killed 
two innocent teenage kids. They had gone to a homecoming football game on a Friday night. They went to a place out near harvested sugarcane fields way out in the country where kids like to go and park. And this man, Patrick Sonier, with his brother had abducted those kids from the place where they were parked. The young woman had been raped and then they were both shot in the back of the head with a 22 rifle. And that's the struggle with the death penalty that we have. Because on the one hand, look at this, it causes moral outrage in us. Look at the death of these two young people ripped out of life. How can you say he doesn't deserve to die for what he did? And that's what the prosecutors use when they go for the death penalty. And they even claim we're going to help the victim's family now. We're going to give them justice. They have lost their son. They have lost their daughter. So what we're going to give them is we're going to give them justice. And justice means only one thing. It means we are going to kill him. And when we do, we're going to allow them to sit on the front row and watch as he is killed. And by their watching that, that is going to give them closure on their grief and their loss. That is going to give them justice. And because the emotions are so strong about the killing of these innocent people, it's kind of like it's an automatic thing that you can just go for. Well, yeah, that seems right. Absolutely, that seems the right thing to do. But of course, what we don't see is that we are now going to turn over to government to decide which of these killings we're going to seek the death penalty for. And we're going to leave it up to the discretion of prosecutors to decide whether or not they're going to go for death. And that's the brokenness and the flawed way the Supreme Court set up the death penalty from the beginning. Granted, there are these terrible crimes. Granted, we feel moral outrage when innocent people are killed. But to have a system in which you say, oh, you're only supposed to reserve it now for the worst of the worst murders. Well, this sure seems to qualify, doesn't it? Worst of the worst. But actually, that criteria is pretty fuzzy. Worst of the worst. Somebody kills my mother, comes in the house, kills my mother. But you have to have certain aggravating circumstances to make it legal. Was it in the course of a robbery? And, and worst of the worst has to mean that you did it in the course of a felony. Worst of the worst also begins or does mean that you killed a citizen of status, like did you kill a policeman? Well, that counts as worst of the worst, but not if you killed a fireman, not if you killed a public school teacher, not if you killed a public health nurse, but a policeman. So we begin to make these delineations, which is what you got to do when you have a law about what worst of the worst means. If you kill a child, but you got to define child. Was it uh, 12 years or younger? Well, here are these parents saying, our son was killed, but he happened to be 14 years old. Sorry, doesn't qualify for worst of the worst, not a child legally. And so you start trying to apply this thing. And then you leave it up to the discretion of prosecutors. So take my state, Louisiana, take all the deep South states that were former slave states. Well, guess how it comes down? Always poor people, 
And this is not just in the South. This pattern was all through the United States when states in the Northeast and all had the death penalty as well. But when it comes to applying it, it's gotta be a prosecutor willing to go for death, much more willing in the Southern states because over 70% of all actual executions, which is over 1500 executions have happened in the 10 Southern states that once practiced slavery. And then when you go to look at worst of the worst, you look at the track record, eight out of every 10 considered worst of the worst is because white people got killed. Because white life is always has been from the beginning of this nation, more highly prized. Black lives do not matter, have not mattered, especially when it comes to crimes we consider the worst of the worst, did you do it against a white person? It's really overwhelming when you look at the way the death penalty got handed down. So when you start out with this theory, oh, we're only gonna reserve it for the worst of the worst, and we're gonna leave it up to individual prosecutors to go for death or not. And the truth is, if a prosecutor does not go for death, people are not gonna be executed. We watched ex-President Trump with his attorney general go for the execution of 13 people because he wanted to, because he chose to. And there had been this execution that happened in the federal uh, system for 17 years. No executions, no execution. Come to him. And then look at this. Those 13 people caught in that time warp under Trump to be killed. The last one killed was on January the 12th. And that just meant eight days. If they could have lived eight days longer, here comes President Biden, who was not going to enact the death penalty. So look how the vagaries and capriciousness with, with which this thing is applied. So by my being in that execution chamber, by my seeing it, first, of course, being outraged over the death of these teenage kids. I mean, who's not outraged over these crimes? But then when you look and see, oh, what we're going to do as a society now is we'll entrust this system over to our public officials and our courts. And, and so we're legitimately killing people, executing them, taking their life. And you know what changes things? Is to bring people close to the reality, the American people. That's why I'm out on, the, have been on the road and now I'm doing it through Zoom. To tell people the story, bring them close, also bring each of us into that deep ambivalence in our own hearts. Because we're outraged over the crime. It's like a moral imperative to be outraged when innocent people are killed. And then on the other hand, but who are we as a society? The death penalty is about us. This is about our response to that. And when you think about it, that it's executions are imitating the worst possible human behavior, but say you're doing it legally. It's the most premeditated form of killing that you take this human being and over years keep at it, that you'll pursue it, pursue it, and then willingly take that life in a protocol, deliberate steps, the most premeditated taking of life. You know what you have to put on the death certificate after an execution where you, where you come 
and I'll throw this out. We can do it in the questions with people too. What do you, what do you think they have to write on a death certificate under cause of death uh, after they've executed somebody? We'll throw that out. That can be something we can talk about uh, among other things, of course. So we have this deep ambivalence in us, outrage over the death of innocent people, but yet how can we trust our government to be able to, how can we put this kind of authority, which is a godlike authority, because we don't cause, we don't create life. And who are we to think that we can take on ourselves to do this kind of judgment uh, to take life from people? So what happened with this fire in me of witnessing the death of this person and learning about how the courts work, learning the big difference when you don't have a really skilled, assertive lawyer at your side when you go to trial. See, the court system at trial is supposed to be this real adversarial way of coming to truth. Prosecution presents, defense presents. But when you have all poor people, and so they have to take whatever kind of lawyer they can get, public defenders, some of whom are just stellar human beings and do their best, but don't have the resources to get independent testing, a DNA, expert witnesses, fly in people. You know, you just saw that that system at work in the trial of, of Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd, you really saw the adversarial system at work because you saw prosecution presenting and you saw defense presenting. But in these trials, like Pat Sonier, he didn't even see his lawyer till the day before the trial for his life. The day before, he, the, the lawyer hardly knew. He was overworked, he was underpaid. And the reason you never see rich people going to death row, it doesn't mean rich people don't do unspeakable crimes, sometimes premeditated, sometimes hiring other people to do it or whatever. It's because that prosecutor knows that that person's going to get a crackerjack of a defense that's going to fight him or her every step of the way. They're going to do pretrial motions. They're going to do all this stuff, and they're going to have a fight on your hands for every step. And no prosecutor wants to go for something like death publicly like that and be defeated. So they kind of do deals with those cases. But poor people that have poor defense for the most part, and they can go for a slam dunk. Sometimes the trials, like Pat, within course of one week, the, the jury was chosen. The first, you have two trials when you have a death penalty. One is just for whether or not you get, they find them guilty or not. And then the whole sentencing trial, whether or not you give them life or death, it was all over from Monday to Friday. And he's sitting on death row. So you learn about the court system and how it works. It's supposed to be the best in the world, but it's far from the, rest, the best in the world because it's prejudiced against from the very beginning and race is in it and poverty is in it. And um, even geographical location, did you murder somebody in Alabama that where they go for the death penalty all the time or did you murder somebody in New York? Or did you murder somebody in Massachusetts where they don't have the death penalty? There's so many flukes in the thing of how it actually works. And then that deep human right 
Finally, the deepest human rights, which are stated in the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 3, an inalienable human right, the right to life. Inalienable right to life, which means you can't alienate that right. Simply because we are human persons, the right to life. In other words, governments don't give that right to people for good behavior and governments don't have the power, shouldn't have the power to take life away for bad behavior. It's out of our realm. In most countries, two thirds of the countries of the world are now abiding by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And when the Catholic Church recently in 2018 finally changed the catechism, it was on that very point that all that time had allowed the right of the government to take life. And that's what has changed now in Catholic teaching because of the people waking up, all of us waking up about this and consciousness and conscience develops and grows. And then you reach a point, the last thing you do is you change it on the books. You change the document. And it is the statement very strong now made by Pope Francis, prepared for by Pope John Paul II, who came right ahead of him, that the dignity of the human person can now never be tolerated that a person can be rendered completely defenseless, strapped down and killed, that is against that person's dignity and human rights. So no matter how grievous the crime, and we're not gonna allow prosecutors to decide, oh yeah, it'll be for this one, but not for that. No matter how grievous the crime, never can we entrust over the government the right to take life. So that has happened in the church. And we do see in more and more and more and more states shutting down the killing chambers, shutting down the death penalty. There are a whole number of factors included that we have made an awful lot of mistakes. So when I describe you going into trial for your life, you suppose they have an adversarial system of getting to the truth, but you don't, you make a lot of mistakes. And we have 185 people now who have been able, by the grace of God, by luck, by good attorneys taking their case, and that prosecutors didn't destroy the evidence showing you made a mistake on me. And I was on death row 30 years, and finally it came out, and now I'm released. This is an incredible statistic, but there's over 1,500 people we've executed. For every eight people we've executed, one has had to be released because we made a mistake. One in eight. Can you imagine getting on a plane? And they say, we have to give you this little alert. Uh, there's a chance you have a one in eight chance that your plane isn't going to make it. It's going to go down in flames. You still want to fly on that airplane? So imagine entrusting life over to this system that is so broken and so wrong. So the people are waking up. And when we wake up, we take action. We get involved. When it comes before our legislature, we speak out. So consciousness, as we awaken, we make change. And we, we, we are witnessing that right now in the trial of, of George Floyd. And a big factor was all those activists out on the street for a year 
black people standing up, black lives matter, making a difference. Because up to this point, no police officer who has killed a black person has ever been convicted and gone to prison. So you see how the white dominant system has just been so in place. And that goes, we don't have a strong human rights constitution. It was marred from the beginning because from the beginning in our constitution, it was only white male property owners who could vote and black people, the slaves were not even considered persons. So it's been a long, and we're very much in it. We have a long way to go in this country uh, against the legacy of slavery and racism. We also have a long way to go of having 40 million poor people. You know, look at, look at the changes now beginning to happen in the policies being made, the COVID Relief Act, which is gonna reduce child poverty in half in what is it, five, seven years, whatever it is, to reduce poverty. People aren't poor because it's their fault. People aren't poor in this country because they're lazy and they don't want to get jobs or send their kids to school. Poverty is a whole culture because they've been blocked in so many ways from being able to buy a house in certain neighborhoods or to have the resources to go to a good school. You got to take what you get in the public schools. And every single study that comes out shows that when you're in the suburbs and you have higher property taxes, you got better schools. You belong to certain zip codes. You're in a low levels. And I learned that when I was in the St. Thomas Housing Projects in the Adult Learning Center, people were coming in to get an education they'd never had a chance. Older people like Miss Ruby, she's 75 years old. She's coming in because she wants to learn to read. She was a kid, she worked out in the fields. Then when she got older, she cleaned white people's houses. Now she's 75, she wants to learn to read because she wants to be able to read the Bible and learn about that man Moses that could go up on that mountain and talk to God and, and his face would be so lit up, he'd have to wear a veil. She wants to find out about him. She's 75 and learn to read. And here are kids coming who had been in the public schools yet to be as far as in their junior year, one more year to go, drop out, come in, can't read a third grade reader because the school's so inferior and they're bound to go to that school. They don't have a choice. So you know the best definition of justice? It's just us. And when we wake up and then we begin to act. So... And I just want to say something about the power of young people. You look at who's leading us in the world on climate change. You look and see who are the leaders in the United States about gun control. Young people are the ones leading the charge. And it's also young people that get it about equal rights and the dignity of gay people as well as heterosexual people. Young people are awake and young people are a power force for change in this country. Don't let anybody ever tell you because you're young, you can't make a difference in this world. Okay, so I'll stop there and we can have time for a little Q&A. Hey, remember that question. What is it that they have to write cause of death on the death certificate after they execute somebody? 
I was thinking maybe they don't have to write anything. That's what my idea was, but it may be wrong. No, yeah, it's wrong. You got to <laughs> write something on a death certificate because it's a it's an official document, cause of death. So what what is it? Failure to breathe? What is it? What do you think they put? I was thinking because like I know some go through lethal injection. They say something about like disease or something like they mentioned that instead of like what the death penalty. Oh, well, just think about this. So what was the disease? Disease means there's something internally wrong with your body that caused you to die. Heart failure, congestive heart failure. What's the disease? The disease is they dying from the government killing them. No. So what you have to put, is anybody else out there that's part of this that wants to answer this question? Or is that not how this works? Is it us answering it together? I can, give it, I can give it a try. Um, is it by natural causes? What's natural about injecting a needle in your arm and putting poison in your body? What's natural about that? Good, good thought though, you're on it. Anybody else? That doesn't shake it. No, that doesn't do it. That's not what they put. Well, not to spend too much time on this so we can get to other questions. What they have to put is homicide. The definition of homicide is human beings killing other human beings. And they have to acknowledge it for what it is. Like some states like Texas say, homicide by reason of legitimate law of... Um, of execution for a crime, but the act of itself is homicide, the deliberate killing of a human being by other human beings. Okay, who else we got in the questions while we got this precious time? Don't y'all be shy and quiet. Anaya, do you wanna start with your question maybe first? Yeah, I had one question about, so like when you meet someone um, who's on death row, um, do you know the facts about their crimes and does your like interaction depend on whether or not you think they're innocent or like how extreme you think their crime is? Yeah, no, you know, you meet them and I as human beings. And I know if I'm going to see somebody on death row that clearly they're there for murder. Um, and I've been with two innocent people on death row. That was my second book that they can be innocent too. We can just see from all the mistakes. So it's the meeting of the human being. Gradually it comes out, the facts of the crime and what happened, but it's the meeting of the human being. They have a dignity and I accompany them because I do not believe they should be killed by the state, but it's, it, it's amazing. You think the first time I met that man on death row that wrote the letters to, I thought, you know, he'd kind of be mean looking, you know, because well, he had murdered somebody. I thought they looked different, you know. And I couldn't believe how human his face was. I mean, the first time I saw him, I went, oh my God, he's a human being. And he was so glad that I'd come. He was just responding to the kindness. So anyway, take them on as a human being and do everything within my power to work with lawyers or get out to the media when that'll make a difference uh, that they will not be killed by the state. So my question kind of airs on a similar note as that. Um, I grew up in a very Catholic household. My grandma, she would always tell me the story of how 
Jesus said the first person to throw the stone is the one who never sinned. And that's how she got me to not fight with my older sister. <laughs> but for me, it's always been a problem. Like I find it very hard to find forgiveness for a lot of people because it's a hard thing, especially when people do things that maybe you don't really see the reason why. So obviously the act of um, not wanting the death penalty is a big act of forgiveness. So I wanted to ask, how do you find it in your heart and kind of with the guidance of God to forgive people for that? Yeah, well, you know that forgiveness is basically from the people who have been hurt directly. They're the ones to do the forgiving or not. That's not primarily my job to forgive. That's between God and them, the victim's family, primarily. But the part in myself that I find is the humanness and the compassion. And the more I come to understand where 90, over 90% 90 of people on death row were abused as children, they had horrible, they witness a lot of violence and they act out of violence. And I compare what they have had in their life and the cushioning and protection and love that I have received. But to be able to cross through that and just say, that's a human being and that act was terrible and I'm outraged at what has happened to the victims, but to treat them as a human being and then to act out of the principle, the moral principle, the state should not be killing them. And the, the dialogue I had with Pope John Paul uh, about the death penalty and, and the Catholic Church's need to, again, in all instances, not to allow that the state can ever execute, was that dignity of the human person. And I said to the Pope, I said, does the Catholic Church only uphold the dignity of innocent life? What about the guilty? And I've talked to a lot of Catholics who say they're pro-life, but they mean innocent life, unborn children. But but when it comes to somebody who kills somebody, they draw a line on that. Oh, but they deserve to die. Forget about their dignity. They don't have any dignity. And that was the heart of the dialogue with Pope John Paul, who took the first step toward ending the death penalty in the Catholic Church. Because when he gave his talk in St. Louis, he said, even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity that must not be taken from them. And it's that rendering of a human being completely defenseless and then deliberately killing them. You can't say you're defending society. That had always been the church's position. We will allow the state to execute to defend society. We have prisons. We don't have to kill people to help keep society safe. And that's why most countries in the world are already putting down death. Somebody else? Yeah, yeah. I got another question for you. All so right. We like, of course, we've always been taught that like two wrongs don't make a right. And I know that if someone was to um, kill one of my loved ones, putting capital punishment on them would not bring my loved one back. So I just kind of wanted to know um, if you talk to the victim's families, um, do they seem to um, feel that uh, capital punishment is actually a restorative function and it helps them at all? Or do you feel like it's not really going anywhere? It doesn't actually help the victim's families. Well, yeah, just a couple of things on that. The starting point of most victims' families is if they could kill them themselves, they would, the ones who took their beloved loved ones from them. But 
So the starting point is almost always anger and yeah, bring it on. But then immediately we see, which victims' families are we talking about now? When I lived in St. Thomas, Virginia Carr had two of her sons murdered within six months, and there was never even an investigation. Black people are hardly ever those victims' families that the prosecution goes and meets with them in their homes saying, you lost your child and we're going to get justice for you, and so we're going to seek death. The starting point, though, and I found out that when you hear this horrible, I mean, like the, the parents of these two teenagers, they woke up on that Friday morning. They had dinner with their kids who then left for a football game and they never saw them alive again. They are traumatized. They are, they are in shock. They are in trauma. They're in grief and they're in sudden loss. And then you ask them, what would you like to see happen? And their starting point for almost all of them is, yeah, bring on the death penalty. And I wish I could do it myself. It's not where many of them stay because then they have a journey. Uh, as, and I've met these incredible people like Bud Welch, whose daughter Julie was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing by Timothy McVeigh in 1995. And he wanted to kill Timothy McVeigh with his bare hands. Then he, he's on that journey of realizing that he's angry all the time. He's drinking too much and it's destroying him. His anger is destroying him. In the beginning, anger can be good because it keeps you from imploding and committing suicide. It gets that adrenaline going, gets you in that courtroom. Yeah, we want to get justice. But if it stays inside you too long, it kills you. And he, Bud Welch realized that. And finally he came to a point and he made the statement. Even he chose not to watch the execution of Timothy McVeigh. And he was the first victim's family to say that his death is not gonna help me heal. Because as the way he put it, even if I watch Timothy McVeigh be killed over that closed circuit TV, when I would come home after the execution, the chair in which Julie sat would still be empty. And you get that huge mystery of not being able ever to replace a human life. And uh, so it's a false solution. And imagine saying to victim's family, now wait 20 years and you get to watch as we kill somebody in front of your eyes and you watch that violence and that's gonna heal your heart. As if, look through that, you gotta see through that. So my question, um, throughout high school, a little bit of background on me, I've been really involved in our school's mock trial team. So I know like a little bit about the legal system in America. And you've talked a lot about both prosecution attorneys and defense attorneys. What role do you think both of them can take in death row cases to maybe combat this issue from the inside? Yeah, we need good prosecutors, you know. A prosecutor never needs to seek death. And this change we're seeing in the country, our district attorneys too, finally they make the decision, is we elected an African-American man, Jason Williams, to be the DA of New Orleans, where we used to be doing the death penalty all the time. In the 80s, when I was first, it got involved in there. He declared in his campaign, he's not seeking death. And he got elected. And now there, there will be no more death penalties 
So we need prosecutors. Their mission is actually to seek justice. It's not necessarily to seek death. And so, and you, you can see the change. Virginia, the first ex-Confederate state just ended the death penalty. They repealed it. Partly that what played a role in it is enlightened prosecutors saying, I'm not seeking death. I'm not seeking death. I'm not seeking death. And they begin to shut it down. They till the soil. So then it was time then that the little tree of justice that we won't execute anymore could, could grow in Virginia. It's a huge thing that has just happened. And <clears throat> so we need good prosecutors. We need good defense. That the, the, the difference between if you ever drove past where the DA's office is in New Orleans and all the people hired, all the resources, and then the poor public defenders in Louisiana, they would only be paid by traffic tickets. You had to get it. If a lot of people didn't speed or get traffic tickets, there was no funds for the, because who wants to have to really have defense for people if you're, if you're so for the death penalty in the first place. Finally, to the Supreme Court. We do not have a court that can look at that word cruel in the Eighth Amendment and recognize yet that to take a conscious imaginative human being and sentence that person to death and put them in a small cell for 15, 20 years and take them out and kill them is not the practice of torture. Torture is defined as an extreme mental or physical assault on someone rendered defenseless. And every person I know that I've accompanied young death row all have the same nightmare. And it's, oh, the guards are coming for me. They're dragging me out of my cell. I'm fighting, I'm struggling, I'm saying no, no. And then I wake up and I look around. No, it was a dream, not tonight. But they will be coming for me because imaginations, we anticipate things. We picture it ahead of time and we go through the agony. So people on death row often die a thousand times inside their minds before they die. As yet, we do not have a Supreme Court that can recognize that that can be called cruelty. They have their little ways that they interpret this text and they say, well, if the framers allowed it, who are we to say that it's, that they didn't believe it's cruel. How can we do that? It's gonna be up to the people and the legislators. To know about human rights and you know the UN Convention of Human Rights and you know the definition of torture. And the minute you get into the experiences of people and you don't separate yourself from that, I don't wanna know about that. You recognize torture for what it is, cruelty. So we have to help the Supreme Court wake up. They're privileged people usually, their experience is very limited with this. And uh, so how do, how do things change? People wake up and we help our political leaders to wake up and we help our Supreme Court justices to wake up too. Okay, y'all, I think I gotta go. You gotta go? I gotta go. Okay.
That's fine. <laughs> um, I just like to thank you again for joining us on our podcast today. I know you're a really busy schedule and you're a really busy person. So it means a lot to us that you could come out and um, you guys, everyone who's listening, I hope that you guys can check out Sister Helen's website at sisterhelen.org, where you can find various resources such as her social media handles, tips on how to write to someone in prison, um, your publications, and ways to donate and a lot of other things. So just a reminder to everybody else, um, Speak Out can be found on Spotify, Apple Music, and on YouTube. And we hope you all come back for future episodes. And my name is Anaya Mosby. And that's Brooke. And this is the wonderful sister Helen. And we thank you for tuning in. Wonderful you. Oh, no, this is great. I love talking to you. Thank you.